large, prominent synagogue in Manhattan. And so I grew up with a, with a good existing network. I know, I know network is something that we're going to be talking about a lot. I think oftentimes, you know, both culturally and spiritually and familiarly, I mean, that, that definitely shaped a lot of it. And also, you know, my dad was a collector and a big sports fan, and those definitely had big imprints in terms of what I wanted to do and kind of where I envisioned myself. So yeah, my, my, my background, both where I grew up and, and all that stuff certainly had a big impact on me. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's quite interesting because a lot of people don't know this, but Jews love sports. And I remember even for my bar mitzvah, I had like my parents got me like this really funny quote. And it was like a bar mitzvah is when a Jewish boy realizes that he's more likely to own the sports team than to play for one. So, <laughs> but that kind of always stuck with me. And I was like, OK, this is kind of cool. And then as I started going to college and networking and finding other Jews that are in the industry, I found that a lot of people are interested in football. What do you think it is that attracts Jewish people to football? It's probably, you know, you, you, you want what you can't have oftentimes. And so there aren't too many Jews who play football at the professional level, though there are a couple. I remember that the Giants had Jewish offensive linemen for a while. His last name was Schwartz. So it's not to say that it's impossible, but uh, my guess is when you look at the breakdown historically of Jews playing in pro sports, football is probably near the bottom of the list, though not impossible. Yeah. Sorry for getting a little off track now back on topic. So you mentioned how you grew up in New York City and you have exposure to a lot of industries. And like most immigrant families and people that are Jewish, education is something that's super important to themselves. And going to get your master's is something that is considered. Was it your family's idea for you to get your master's or what ultimately led you to go get your master's? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I, we, we certainly always prioritized, you know, you know, sort of having a good education in my family. In fact, my, my dad's mother, my grandmother was a teacher for many years, and she actually developed the reputation of Mrs. Levine, the homework queen, because she was known to give a lot of homework for many years. So education was always something that was a, a strong priority in our family. Honestly, didn't give it too much thought, but when I was in college, and it was my senior year, as you mentioned at the top of the podcast, I was a history major and an American studies major. So that doesn't really give you a logical next career path. Not like if you're already a sort of pre-med, you know you're going to, to, to school to become a doctor. I, I didn't really have that preset trajectory. So I did what a lot of people do, and I actually started applying to law schools. And I took, I took the exams and all that stuff and quickly realized that I didn't, really be, I didn't want to become a lawyer. So I pivoted my search and so I applied to a lot of different companies, and one of that, one of which happened to be Bloomberg, which were dumb enough to offer me a position straight out of college. And I started my career at Bloomberg. It was through that experience that I really uh, developed a love of the financial markets. After Bloomberg, we're skipping ahead a little bit, but after Bloomberg, I was hired away by one of the clients that I was covering at Bloomberg, and I realized that you know I never really had a traditional kind of finance, accounting, business degree. It was almost happenstance that. I found myself working in the financial markets and analyzing businesses and trading markets. And I just, but I never had, you know, kind of a strong foundation on it. I think I learned a lot, but in the back of my head, <clears throat> I always had, you know, a little bit of insecurity around the fact that I never had kind of form, formal education around it. So it was really my resolve to just kind of patch up what I thought was a perceived weakness of my own. So I decided to go back to NYU Stern to get my MBA with a specialization in finance. And I actually did that in the evenings while I was working at this, at this investment firm. So a busy couple of years, but I thought it was something that I definitely wanted the, the credential. I wanted 
to kind of patch up what I perceived as my own uh, weakness or insecurity. And so I went back to school while working and I wouldn't trade that experience, but I also am happy that I'm, I'm through it. Yes. So you mentioned about how your first job out of college was in Bloomberg and you're, you were an analyst there. Your college experience and degree didn't necessarily help with that. What were some skills that or classes that you took in college that were able to help you with your first job at Bloomberg? Yeah, I mean, you know, I not I mean the, the from a class specific standpoint, not much, although what's kind of interesting is in my current career, a lot of the classes that I actually took in college have come back around to be helpful. Like for instance, uh, I took a history of baseball class that actually shockingly has become helpful. That's crazy that sounds. I took a history of museums and museum curation in college that actually has come back to be helpful. Some of the classes that I just took because I thought they sounded cool are ones that have actually randomly come back to be relevant in my life, but you know, I think I think the classes that I took in college that might be relevant. I mean, I took a lot of psychology classes. Again, when you're an American studies major, it's pretty broad. You can take a lot of different classes and a lot of different subjects. So I think psychology, I mean, no matter what you do, psychology and human interaction is a big part of it. You know, I took a sales class and sale anything you do, no matter what profession you go into, there's a, you know, a degree of salesmanship that is required. So more of the more of the interpersonal classes. And then, you know, again, I think here's where I really benefit from growing up in New York City. I mean, New York City is kind of the hub of business, the hub of markets, the hub of a lot of industries. And, you know, it's through relationships, whether through my friend's parents or just anyone in our network. I mean, they, they were particularly instructive in at least recommending a career path or, or recommending certain companies to apply. And it was really through that that I wound up carving up my, my own journey. So, again, just back to kind of the securitous nature of career paths. Everyone thinks it's it's going to be linear and it should be linear. In my experience, at least, that has never been the case. It's been a series of twists and turns, but you know what I've realized is wherever you are, just to work as hard as you can and be opportunistic and say yes to as many things, and you never really know where it leads. Yeah, and I think it's quite interesting, the fact that you took classes in college that you took for fun back then, but now they're actually very helpful with what you're doing with collectibles. And that just kind of shows that you never know what you're going to need in the future. So it's better to be well-rounded. Going back to your first transition from Bloomberg to work as a portfolio manager for, as you mentioned, one of the clients that you were able to befriend in your time at Bloomberg, what made you want to make that transition and how smooth was it for you? Again, you know, I, I, I didn't really have all this planned out or laid out, right? So I really just kind of followed the opportunities that were available to me. And in my case, I think there's a lot of luck involved and a lot of kind of securitiveness. But you know, what happened was when I was at Bloomberg, I was initially initially assigned to a global customer support training. When you're hired at Bloomberg, every new hire first starts at the ground level, right? And that, that really is kind of global customer support. But they train you really well to be in that position because your clients are very demanding and you know very high high stress high everything and very much real time so you have to be able to speak their language and do so you know with a degree of knowledge so before you're even put into the, the lowest wrongs of customer facing at bloomberg you go through an extensive multi-month training course and that really set the foundation for for a lot of it i happened to be you know in the kind of global customer support role for about three to six months i don't remember the exact time frame but it was shorter than most people were. And that was really just by happenstance. I needed someone to cover a New York City hedge funds account. And they knew that I was from New York City. And I, in fact, knew a couple of the people just through just through relationships who whose account I would be covering. And so I was promoted to a sales team just 
from that. And Bloomberg at the time, not to get too granular, but Bloomberg was doing a big software upgrade that required every Bloomberg customer to take a physical in-person meeting with all their clients to kind of switch them on and to educate them on on the new software that they'd be deploying. No one wanted to take the meeting, I can I remember. I was fighting tooth and nail to actually get the meeting, but they had to. In order to get the new system, they literally had to take a meeting. And so I got lucky. I mean, that, that was timing. I don't know if all this would have happened if not for people having to take the meeting and all that stuff. But my life for a couple of months was literally just going to office to office, fund to fund, shop to shop, and just kind of interacting with Bloomberg customers. And I happened to get lucky that one of the, the clients they had was the founder of the company sent their kids to the same high school that I went to. And we just developed a relationship, a friendship. And ultimately, a couple months later, they had an opportunity available at their fund and they offered me a job to begin trading. I didn't have any trading experience. I knew nothing. But I just, you know, I guess what he saw in me was someone who, who was willing to learn and willing to work hard. So I accepted that just because it was a nice bump up and everything from compensation to say primarily compensation. So I took, <laughs> I took the job. I knew nothing. I was terrified, but I knew that I would do what I always did, which is just try to immerse myself and learn and, and work hard and you know, not pretend that I knew things I did it, just be kind of a sponge in that role. And that's what I did for, for three or four years. And then again, just by chance, a lot of those things happened by chance. When I was kind of three years into that role, fund decided to give back a lot of the outside money from investors. And it became what's called the family office. A family office is literally just, we were just managing just my boss's family's money. And as a result of that, the fund shrunk both in terms of kind of assets they were managing, but more importantly for me, in terms of the amount of people who were at the fund. So when I was first joined, there was like 25 people and I had a very junior role. And after they gave back a lot of the money, the fund shrunk to literally five, six, seven people. It was very small. And I was lucky enough, probably because I was, that was too cheap to matter at the point that one of the people who kind of still had a job when all, when everything was shaken out. And so, you know, my role just continued to grow and I continued to work hard. And at that point I was uh, in business school and learning. And so applying my, the stuff that I was learning at school to the fund. And I just kept getting more and more opportunities. And that really ultimately at the end of my eight year trajectory there, I was, you know, sort of managing some investments for the fund in the consumer, media, retail, and sports sectors, and learned a lot through that. And then it also pivoted because we were starting to make some private investments, not just public investments. Again, at a family office, you can pretty much do whatever your boss wants you to do. And so he started to make some private investments, one of which was minor league football league, which he asked me to take an oper- you know, sort of an operator's role in it on top of being an analyst for the fund. And so again, a lot of luck, a lot of kind of securitousness, things I did not plan for, but I think a lot of it's just being in the right place, right time, working hard and, and just kind of staying alive. Yeah, you mentioned about how when you first took that job, you didn't know what it entailed and how you were going to do it and how you were scared, but you were ready for the task and the challenge. When did that imposter syndrome go away? I don't think, I don't think it ever goes away. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's kind of healthy. I think it's a, a healthy feeling to have it. I think when you get brash and confident, that's oftentimes you know, kind of a negative side. For me, I've always felt a degree of imposter syndrome, no matter what I've done. Certainly when you're doing something new for the first time, you probably feel it more acutely than when you feel like you have some experience. I, I was terrified. I mean, I was terrified my first couple of, my first couple of years of the job. I felt terrified. I mean, I, I remember having nightmares and would get up at all hours in the morning. But I think because of that, 
fear, I worked harder and I was a good motivator. Fear is often a very good motivator. And so I think one of the, my best qualities is I, I don't get overconfident. I tend to be pretty humble and kind of probably sort of under undersell my abilities oftentimes. And I think that really has led to a good work ethic because I don't like feeling that way, but I think it's actually a good thing that you, you feel that way. Yeah. And going from like all those experiences and situations that you were in your past job and kind of feeling that like now that you have all these knowledge and different things, that kind of like transitioned into where you're currently at with collectibles. So how did you come up with that idea and what made you think that like, oh, this is actually going to work? Yeah, so the, the backstory there was, you know, so I was still at the fund and I became more of an operator and, you know, sort of an entrepreneur in light, as I always call it, with this football league, which I ended up running and operating for a couple of years and then ultimately exited. And yeah, it was sort of my first foray into entrepreneurship and seeing what that was like. And just kind of my own experience was that I just really enjoyed it a, a lot more. I was thinking about it a lot more. It just, it got me going a lot more than being an, an analyst and analyzing other people's companies. And so I took that a little bit as a cue that maybe I should do this more full time as opposed to kind of juggling both. And so I, I started looking around for other opportunities. Going back to the start of, of the interview, I said my dad was a collector and that was a big, a big part of his life and sports were a big part of his life. And so just in, the, in that sort of exploration phase of what I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I knew I wanted to operate a business. I like sports. It wasn't a prerequisite. I didn't have to be in sports, but you know, ideally, if I could find something in sports, that'd be great. And you know, I had a background and knowledge base of collectibles because my dad is very passionate and very involved in that. And so I just kind of applied some of my business school thinking of finding kind of underserved areas of the market, trying to identify opportunities, trying to figure out maybe where my skill sets worked well. And, you know, I realized that the collectibles category, particularly sports collectibles, because that's what we've done to date, that we are you know, going to be branching out to other categories. But sports collectibles to me felt like a category that was very ripe for innovation in a lot of ways. There's a multi-billion dollar category, but when you looked at a lot of the, the kind of players within it, and I love a lot of the players within it, become very close with it. But on, on the outside, it's, it was a pretty legacy business model, not a lot of technology being used, not a lot of marketing, you know, having really been deployed didn't really get the proper respect. You know, you never really heard about sports collectibles, but when you looked at the numbers, it was a multi-billion dollar category. And I thought, huh, that, that's kind of interesting, right? Like almost in spite of itself, it's, it's a big business. And so maybe I could come in and, you know, kind of apply some, you know, some, uh, some financial market principles and, you know, kind of hire some people who understood, you know, kind of how to, how to build beautiful B2C product and sort of employ technology in ways that it hadn't been used, I thought maybe that it was an opportunity. And so, again, you never know that these things are, are going to work. And in fact, very, very much still as a startup, you know, you're still living and breathing every day. But, you know, I thought the business rationale was good. I, I knew that, you know, I wanted to do it and I wasn't getting any younger. And so I just, we just, I just did it. I just, I just did it. And timing in some ways was great. And timing in other ways was terrifying. I'd made, you know, I decided to do this. This was it kind of late 2019. And when I left finance and started this, and then a couple months later, a global pandemic hit that no one could anticipate. And we were trying to raise around the funding with very little money in the bank during a global pandemic, which wasn't fun. I was, I was rethinking life at that point, if I had made the right decision or not, but we kept pushing through and, you know, we're, we're in a decent spot right now. So again, never know, you know, but you, I think you just, 
you just take all that you learned and kind of trust in your instincts and do the best you can. You work hard every day and hope that it works out. Yeah. What innovation are you guys bringing to the collectible space that isn't being done currently? Yeah. So, you know, the, the thesis really was to, to try to bring a real financial market infrastructure to collectibles. When you looked at some of the data, not just the sports collectibles, but in collectibles overall, it was clear to me that collectibles were being looked at as an asset class, but there was no tool to support it being an asset class. And so I remember reading a study that showed that two to 5% of, uh, of high net worth clients from some major banks were kind of invested in collectibles and all different types of collectibles from art to wine, to watches, cars, memorabilia, you name it. <clears throat> so a pretty meaningful chunk of high net worth portfolios are being invested in collectibles, but it was very one-off, very, a lot of friction, high transaction fees, just not a lot of technology being used. And I thought that that was an interesting opportunity to kind of create a, an exchange of financial market infrastructure around collectibles, starting with sports collectibles. So that, that was really the problem that we're looking to solve is, you know, kind of lower transaction costs, lower barriers to entry, approachable price points, uh, lesser kind of transaction fees and transaction costs. And so, you know, that's, that's where refractionization came in. Yeah. And with the rise of NFTs and everything that's happening in the Web3 space and NBA Top Shop and a Top Shot and some of these other companies that are licensed by big sports leagues, how has that been affecting your industry? I think in a lot of ways it was good, right? I mean, I think one, I remember when, well, a couple of things. One, when I, when I first made the transition to collectibles and I told people I was getting into collectibles, they looked at me like I had three heads. They, they didn't quite understand it. It just wasn't wasn't a sexy place to be. It really wasn't like it wasn't had no cool factor. It was, you know, it was looked at as this pretty legacy schluffy kind of industry. And so now when you say collectibles, I think probably because of NFTs and Top Shot and a couple of other things, there's a little bit of a cool factor there that had never been before. That was not intended. I did not expect that to be coming though. I, I knew about NFTs. I did not expect it to catch fire the way it did. So I would say the perception of it, it became more mainstream and people kind of understood what you're doing. The, the other thing I would say, and maybe even a larger shift, is the, the acceptance of digital collectibles really kind of accelerated the need or, or the, the desire for people to not necessarily have their collectibles physically in their possession. And, that, and that's a big shift, right? Like when I, I remember when we first started this, people said, well, who would ever want to own a collectible that they can't put on their wall or they can't take out of their closet or who would ever want to own shares in a collectible? And I think what digital collectibles did was it decoupled like the physical association and possession of a collectible. Now people were comfortable owning a collectible that they couldn't touch and feel. And that plus, I won't go into too many details, but that plus, you know, vaulting, lending against collectibles, all those things have really accelerated the acceptance, if you will, of not necessarily having to uh, physically possess collectibles that you own. I think those have been big trends that have supported kind of the fractionalization of collectibles. Yeah, I think that you looking at the industry as this is an old industry has to be changed and around the same part, like the NFT boom that's happening right now and in that industry, it just kind of shows that you were able to foresee that and you were there again with the right time because you were right there before it all blew up. And I think that 
the collectible industry and NFT industry all blew up over COVID because or towards the end of COVID because everybody started wanting to go out. You could use your NFTs as like kind of like event passes. It developed these communities and that's everything that people wanted. And I think that's very similar to collectibles because it's like if you know, you know, like one of those things. And it kind of makes you feel like you're part of like a really interesting club and it gives you access to like networking events or you get a network with people based on certain items that you may have and it's all about the connections that you do know in the industry because you have to understand like when a certain item is coming out why it's rare and learning all that stuff what have you found is like the most exciting part about this industry a lot. I mean, you know, again, I, I do think it is sort of if you know, you know, right? So some things that I might find cool or things that other people might not find cool, but probably because I have more intimate knowledge of, of some things. And I think the coolest part is, you know, just the, the connection to history, right? I mean, I think, I think that's something that as I, as I look back and kind of my very random kind of educational journey, and clearly I was drawn to the, to the historical nature of stuff. I mean, it led me to take a lot of history of classes and even as a kid, I mean, I was drawn to kind of learning about old athletes and learning about old stadiums and kind of history of things. And for some reason, that always appealed to me. And I enjoy just kind of learning about history, being part of history, a lot of times touching and feeling history. If you uncover artifacts or you're looking to sell artifacts, I, mean, I think I think that's the coolest thing for me is just kind of the, the forced attachment and learning of history. That's something that I just, I don't, it doesn't feel like work. And I guess that's what everyone's looking for at the end of the day is something that is work, but doesn't really feel like work. That's something you choose to do regardless of if it was work or not. And so that, that I think is something that's pretty cool about collectibles is, is that a sense of history and that, you know, kind of just being part of it. The collectible industry is something that seems like it takes a lot of time and energy and passion. And when you're working so hard on a certain thing, it's hard to have a good work-life balance. How do you manage that? <laughs> I think if you ask my wife, she'd say I don't, which is probably true. You know, I've, I've, I have two young kids and it's hard. I think honestly, that's the hardest thing that I, I struggle with every day. I think it's, it's very, very difficult. I try, but it's very tough. So I, I don't think I, I'm probably not the right person to ask here. I don't think I have a great answer for you. <laughs> but I, 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 would, I would agree that it's important and I probably shouldn't do better at it. <laughs> I, I just think that's quite funny because that's what, <laughs> yeah yeah currently right now that's like one of the things that i'm also having an issue with is having like that good work-life balance and when work does become super stressful how do you like not bring that energy back home and try to like kind of put on a smile even though in the back of your mind you have these work issues going on and one of the things that is super big right now is mental health and taking care of those thoughts how do you distress from work? Yeah, again, I don't, I'm probably not the poster child to be answering this question, but I can tell you, you know, one, I mean, I will say at least temporarily, one of the best parts of my day every day is, I don't know if you guys have kids or, but, you know, I have two young sons, one's three and, and, and one's one. And no matter what happens during the course of the day, when you walk in, it is like their hero has arrived back home, right? And so that that, that is great. I mean, it does at least temporarily it makes you forget a lot when you you walk in the door and you're greeted and big hugs and all like that. That is a great, a great temporary kind of reprieve from everything, but it's hard. Then the kids go to sleep and your, your mind starts to wander again. You go back to work. So, you know, I would say, yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think particularly in entrepreneurship and 
or when you're doing anything new or when you put it, you're really investing in yourself. It is very important to keep kind of your mental health as best you can. Very important to try to balance work-life balance as best you can. I've always found it easier, easier said than done. So I don't really think uh, I've, I have two great answers for you there, but you know, I think, I think the, the obvious ones are people, you know, I think working out always helps getting some, some fresh air always helps. I live in New York city, so it's easy to go outside and take a walk. I've at various points I've, I've, I've meditated, which I always find to be really nice and really helpful. I don't do it as consistently as I would like to, but every time I have committed myself to it, it does, it does really help. So again, pro- probably not the best post child to be answering these questions, but I definitely agree with its importance. Yeah, I think that New York City is probably one of the worst places to distress because when you're trying to distress, you see and you go outside for a walk, you just see somebody like just like going at it. So for me personally, when I see somebody like going at it and I'm just like relaxing, it makes me feel like I'm not doing enough. And then I just like have like this own competition within my own head, like, oh, you're not doing as much as you should. So what I try to do is I try to get out of New York City, try to go hiking, go to somewhere where like I'm not going to see anybody work in New York City. You could literally go. Doesn't matter what time of day you'll find somebody working in New York City. Like it's like nobody here ever sleeps. That's true. Very true. Yeah. Having a lot of experience throughout your career and working in different industries, there must have been like mistakes that you've made. What is one that you wish you could have avoided and how did you learn from it? Well, I would say, you know, that the, the first one that pops to my mind was, so I was, I was telling you guys that, you know, I, I kind of, I became a trader with no prior trading knowledge and kind of thrust into this world. And you know, when I first got my opportunity to really start executing trades, my very first trade, I screwed it up and what's called a fat finger trade. I bought way too much of one particular stock and it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And, you know, for me, it was, it wasn't that I messed up mechanically, but I messed up mentally and I didn't ask, I didn't ask enough questions, right? It was one of the, it was one of the times in which I thought I knew, but I wasn't sure, but because I was new and I was just scared to ask for clarification, I just assumed and I took a degree of risk and that assumption was a faulty assumption. So I think what I tried to learn from it is just ask questions, right? That, you know, more times than not, and I should say more times, almost every time, whoever you're working with or working forward, rather you ask questions and to communicate clearly and make sure everyone's on the same page before taking an action that could be harmful. And so I think that's really what I've tried to do is you know, never think that a question is too dumb, never be embarrassed to ask a question that you don't know the answer to, because again, most times that are not, other people have questions too. And I think that's, I think, you know, I think that really has been something that I've tried to implement and that really came out of kind of uh, a terrifying first experience where I made a big mistake. Thank God it didn't cost us a lot in the long run, but it was something that was very, was very sort of anxiety provoking in the moment. And certainly I'll never forget it. It seems like you were able to get quite a valuable lesson from that and that it was able to help you throughout your whole career. And personally, myself, I know that one thing that I struggle with is sometimes asking for too much right away. I think that it's really important that like big corporations have like this onboarding process because they want you to like slow and ease into your job because they don't want to overwhelm you. But one thing that I always try to do is I try to get all the onboarding done right away. And then hop into the real work and then it becomes like way too overwhelming and you're like, what is going on here? So I think that I definitely understand what you're coming from, Matt. That is one thing I also had to learn. I wanted to ask you, every single person has like a goal of kind of what they're trying to achieve with their career, kind of like 
that light at the end of the tunnel. What is your goal that you're trying to achieve with your, your career? It's funny. I mean, I, I don't necessarily have a specific dollar in mind or a specific achievement in mind. I, mean, I think yeah. my, my happiness really would come from a couple of things, right? And that's securing financial freedom for my family. I think, I think that's something that definitely is a driving force in a lot is just kind of taking care of my family as a big one. And then I think the other one is my own personal gratification and feeling like I didn't go to work every day and clock in, clock out and that I, I tried, right? And that I tried, I experimented and I kind of pursued whatever I thought was interesting and exciting at that moment. That, that's not always easy to do, especially when there's real life pressures and external pressures. And But I think that that is something that I've tried to prioritize is if I have a passion, if there's something that's kind of like tickling me or getting me excited just to pursue it and not to, I don't, I don't want to live with regrets, I guess, is if I can, if I can have a career that enables me to kind of provide for my family and protect my family and one where at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, I can say, I don't really regret much. That to me would be happiness and success. And I, I think I've tried to follow those, those, those two kind of parallel paths. Wow. Well said, well said. Thank you so much, Ezra, for coming on to today's podcast. We'll put a link in the show notes about Collectible. And if there's anything you want to say to the audience, now is your chance. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks for, for, for having me. Yeah, no, you should definitely check out you know, our site. It's www.collectible.com. It's a pretty cool company. You can come to our site and you can invest in really rare and iconic and valuable collectible pieces. Uh, and aside from investing, you can learn a lot. And at the end of the day, that... That has always been what appeals to me most is you can own a piece of tangible history, but you can also learn a lot about, about some pretty cool things that happened in history. So I definitely encourage you to check it out. And thanks again for having me. This has been a lot of fun.